This week marks the retirement of Dean Elgar, one of South African cricket's legends. Dean captained the side in one of the most turbulent periods in the history of the Proteas. This is the story of how Dino went from being driven 200 kilometers to play cricket every weekend to captaining his country. Welcome to the Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Thursday, March the 25th, 2010, didn't turn out to be the best of days for the Titans. They were at home at Supersport Park in Pretoria, but home ground advantage ended up being less advantageous than it might have been. Their visitors, the Knights from the Free State, ended up Thursday's play, the first day of a Supersport Series match, on 502 for three. Having conceded over 500 runs in a day, I'm comfortable assuming that several Titans players showered as quickly as they could and made a beeline for their sponsored cars, cars that they probably didn't want to spend too much time in. It was the kind of day's play that encourages you to rush home, draw the curtains, and turn off the lights just in case, a kind of do-it-yourself pre-load-shedding load-shedding. It was the kind of day, at 502 for three, that encourages you to be philosophical. Chief scorer for the Knights against the Titans on the day was a beefy 20-year-old left-hander called Riley Rousseau, who walked to the crease when Riza Hendricks was out for three, with the total on six. Rousseau made merry that Thursday. When he was out 85 overs and a ball later, he had made 319 runs in 291 balls. Most teams would be quite content to score 319 runs in a day, but Rousseau was happy to take one for the team and do it all by himself. It's difficult to convey the dimensions of the carnage in a podcast. You have to listen carefully, but, for the statistically inclined, a quick screen grab of the battlefield horrors. Rousseau scored 47 fours in his 319, that's nearly 200 runs in fours. In addition, he belted eight sixes. Rousseau's strike rate was a touch under 110, which means that he was scoring 11 runs for every 10 balls faced. He did that from the third over to nearly the close of play. No wonder the Titans scuttled away in their sponsored cars. It's difficult to know whether to call his innings a marathon or a sprint. Perhaps we can get away with inventing a new portmanteau word and call it a sprinterthon or a marisprint. Whatever it was, it was probably neither, although it was also probably both, the kind of innings that only comes along once or twice in a career. Another way of making sense of Rousseau's 319 is to tell you who was bowling against him, which prompts me to add that it wasn't the children of the Montessori creche up the road. Hardis Fulyun, who played a handful of tests for the Proteas, opened the bowling with Bashiru Dean Walters. Pierre Hubert, referred to by some as, quote, the poor man's Jacques Cullis, bowled 16 tidy overs at less than three runs to the over, and David Visser and Sean von Berg, who has just been called up to the South African team for two away tests in New Zealand in February, bowled nearly 30 overs between them. 
That's a handy attack in anyone's language. In the understudy role for much of Rousseau's barnstorming innings was another knight's left-hander. His gifts were less conspicuous. He was smaller and swarthier. The adjectives that seem to attract themselves to his name have a gentle tint of the begrudging. Words like nuggety and compact and crabby. Just in case you haven't already guessed it, his name was Dean Elgar. He was 156 not out overnight that Thursday and added five more on the second morning as the Knights declared nine down on 570, to which the Titans responded with 546 for nine declared, with Ghulam Bodhi scoring 159 and Farhan Behadin 99. Several days and many runs later, the Titans, batting last, crept over the line with two wickets to spare. They had snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. After some of the players drove home in their sponsored cars as quickly as possible on the Thursday night, they could now afford to meander in more leisurely fashion back to the suburbs, possibly even with the windows down. Two years older than Rousseau, Elga's career was to head off in a conventional, almost classic direction. Rousseau, meanwhile, went off in hot pursuit of white ball riches. Come to think of it, the two came to represent modern cricket's two faces. In the one portrait cricket, with a beard, looked like it always had, trustworthy, backward-looking, capable nonetheless of hidden kinks. In the other portrait, cricket was wearing a baseball cap or a beanie. It was chewing gum and wearing outsized headphones, on which were playing acid house or retro or indie or funk. This was cricket in its age of space exploration. People who didn't know much about the game but liked what they saw were about to become excited. Although overshadowed by Rousseau's nonchalant belligerence, Elgar's more unassuming cricket gifts didn't go unnoticed. Two and a half years after the match between the Titans and the Knights, in late November and early December 2012, he made his test debut in the third test against Australia at the Wacker in Perth. The first two tests of the series were drawn. Faf Duplessis scored a heroic rearguard first test hundred, with the Proteas eight wickets down in the second test in Adelaide, so by the time the third test in Perth arrived, the selectors were conscious of needing to get the South African side just right. As luck would have it, Elgar replaced Jacques Rudolph for the third test in Perth. Rudolph not only played in the first two tests, but it played against Elgar in the Rousseau match that autumn day back at Supersport Park in March 2010. It has since become a mainstay of pub quizzes and I'm the smartest man at the spry get-togethers that Elgar made a pair on test debut. In Perth, he batted at six and faced all of 16 cumulative balls across the two innings. Like Graham Gooch, who also scored a pair on test debut, batting at five rather than six in the first test against Aussie at Edgbaston in 1975, rum beginnings were a prelude to bigger and bolder things. Elgar's pair wasn't held against him. He was still in the test side when South Africa next played, scoring 21 in the New Year's test against New Zealand at Newlands in early 2013. A week after that, 
he scored his first test century, 103 against the Kiwis at St George's Park. He was up and running. It's always revealing to see not only who players play against, but who they play with. Elgar has always been a top-order batsman, but in his third test he again batted in the lower middle order, this time at number 7. It was the only available spot in a batting lineup that included Graham Smith, Jacques Cullis, A.B. de Villiers, Hashim Amla and Faf Duplessis. Elgar arrived at the wicket with a total on 336 for 5, Amla having just gone for 110. Duplessis, who had scored that wonderful rearguard 100 in Adelaide, was the not-out batsman. Sensing that there were runs for the taking against a tiring New Zealand attack, Elgar and Duplessis put on 131 for the sixth wicket, both making hundreds. Duplessis was also beginning his test career. It was good to have him around, although it was also awkward because they were sometimes fighting for a single place. In that tiring New Zealand attack were Doug Bracewell and Colin Munro. Munro only played one test for his country, while Bracewell played 28 of them spread over 12 years. Neither, it is fair to say, became household names in North Auckland or anywhere else in New Zealand for that matter. Elgar could have opened the innings in his first three tests, facing Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson at Trent Bridge, Lords and Old Trafford, but he didn't. He could have batted at six and seven in his first three tests and also faced Anderson and Broad at those self-same three venues. He didn't. He was lucky. He was also lucky, see the aforementioned point, to play for the Proteas when not only Amla and Rudolph were in the side, but so too were Smith, de Villiers, Cullis, Dale Stain and Vernon Philander. Elgar had a soft landing. It was a soft landing in a winning side, unlike, say, the landing accorded to other left-handers of recent memory, like Stian van Sale and Ryan Rickleton. To continue the metaphor, they have landed in a field or on a potholed road, so it is not surprising that they have struggled to be airborne a second and a third time. Rickleton might never fly again. For the first 18 months of his test career, Elgar batted in middle-order purgatory, only ever finding a spot at 6 and 7. When he wasn't competing directly with Duplessis for a place in the side, he was often next in after Duplessis. It was all a tad ambiguous and gave the impression that Elgar was being accommodated, perhaps slightly reluctantly. After his first test century against New Zealand, in his fourth, fifth, sixth and seventh tests, Elgar played against Pakistan. Three of these tests were played at home and one was played in Dubai because that's where Pakistan played her home tests at the time. Elgar was so unsuccessful in these four tests against Pakistan that there was a danger his test career might slip away into domestic semi-obscurity. In the last of these four tests against Pakistan, he had worked his way up to three in the batting order, behind openers Smith and Alviro Peterson, but it was touch and go as to whether he would prevail. So much uncertainty surrounded him that when India arrived for a three-test series in December 2013 and January 2014, Elgar didn't make the team. He watched it all from the sidelines. Christmas of 2013 was not his happy place. 
he wondered if the test against Pakistan in Dubai was to be his last. After the second test of that home series against India, however, Cullis retired, opening a position in the Proteas' upper order. Although Elgar didn't play in the third test of the series against India, he was in the team for the next home test of the summer, this time against Australia. As luck would have it, the first test at home to Australia was at St George's Park, the venue at which Elgar had scored his first test century against Bracewell and Monroe of New Zealand. In this test, he opened the South African innings with Smith, the one and only time he and Smith ever opened for South Africa together. Ironically, the two have often been compared. After missing the India tests, Elgar knew that he had to make the St. George's Park match count. Both Smith and Elgar batted twice, but it is the first innings scores that are revealing. Here Smith scored 9 and Elgar 83. Smith's star was falling while Elgar's was rising. Again, he was up and running. Elgar had to drop down to three for the next test at Newlands because of a returning Alviro Peterson, but fate had a trick or two up her sleeve. After the Newlands test of 2014 against Australia, Smith unexpectedly retired aged 33. Smith and Cullis, two legends of the game, had retired within the space of three tests. The situation was suddenly fluid. Two retirements meant two openings, and suddenly Elgar and Duplessis could both be accommodated. When South Africa next played, against Sri Lanka in Gaul in the winter of 2014, Elgar opened the innings for South Africa, batting alongside Elviro Peterson. When Peterson was out, Elgar was joined by Duplessis. Against an attack featuring Saranga Lakmal, Rangana Herath and Angela Matthews, they put on 125 for the second wicket. Duplessis made 80. Elgar scored 103, his second test century. This, we see now, was the proper beginning, the beginning after the false beginning, the beginning that could be trusted. Here we go. Talking of beginnings, Elgar grew up in Velkom, a predominantly Afrikaans mining town in the middle of the country. He was raised by a father who once played football semi-professionally for Durban United as a defender. Quote, he was paid a match fee and then went out and drank 900 pints afterwards, Elgar told me a couple of years ago. Later he started running marathons and ultramarathons. He was always hard but fair on me. He only came down hard when I hadn't prepared as well as I should have. In Velcom, Elgar went to a Catholic school called St. Dominic's, which isn't really famous for anything other than being the Catholic high school in Velcom that Dean Elgar went to. Elgar soon outgrew what St. Dominic's had to offer. He soon outgrew what Velcom had to offer. This meant getting in the car during cricket season while his father drove the 200-odd kilometres to Bloemfontein in the south so that Dean could play club cricket at sufficient standard. Quote, Growing up in Velcom played a role in the definition of my character. Yes, for sure, Elgar told me in that self-same interview a couple of years ago. I was playing club cricket in nearby Bloemfontein from quite a young age, and the Afrikaans boys there come hard at you. It's basically a question of fit in or fuck off. 
they were older than me and I wasn't indulged. That fit in or fuck off phrase is vintage Elgar. It's vintage Velcom too. Elgar isn't the kind to say get lost when fuck off will do. Jacques Fall, his provincial chief executive, tells me that deans of vintage fluker or swearer for those international listeners whose Afrikaans isn't what it should be. It all goes to demonstrate that you can take Elgar out of Velcom, but you'll never be able to take Velcom fully out of Dean. Forgive me while I interrupt a sports story to tell you about the Luke Alfred Show Patreon. As you may know, being a writer is not the most lucrative career choice. Please consider making a small donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash the Luke Alfred Show. But for now, let's get back to the story. That's Elgar's story in a nutshell, the cricketer who wasn't indulged. Again, however, the opposite is true. He was indulged. His father indulged him a great deal. Many, many years ago, when Elgar was just a distant but steady blip on the national radar, growing imperceptibly bigger with each sweep of the season, I asked him whether he had ever thanked his dad for the time and love and money he'd spent on him. It was a cheeky question. Perhaps I was a little bored. Anyway, I asked it. There was a stunned silence on the other end of the line. Clearly, I'd asked Elgar something he'd never thought about. I was pleased to notice that when Elga announced his retirement a couple of weeks ago, he thanked all the important people in his life, including his old man. Fate might have smiled on Dean, allowing him to come in on the day he made his first test century with a total on 336 for 5, but the opposite is equally true because he was seldom in the same side twice. Smith's stellar side made way for something else, a talented team who often looked like a jigsaw puzzle that is 90% complete, but you know will never be finished. Smith and Cullis, for example, weren't the only big names to retire from the scene when Elgar was making his way. Elgar opened the South African innings with Alviro Peterson for 18 months before he too retired to take up a Colpac deal with Lancashire. Elgar's next partner was Stian van Sale. He even opened a test in India in 2015 with Temba Bavuma. Vinsale came back for a home series against England, where he struggled against Broad bowling round the wicket to him. Many better left-handers than the unlucky Vinsale have also been tormented by Broad. Finally, Vinsale was replaced by Stephen Cook. Cookie was interesting. He either went big or he went home. He went home after 11 tests in which he scored three test centuries against some splendid attacks, but he did little else. Elgar once even opened the innings with Tiernus de Brain. For a while, he opened the innings in England, where now in the English summer of 2017, with Heino Kuhn. Kuhn lasted the series and appeared to be getting the hang of things, but was turfed after four tests, all of them in England, a challenging place for opening batters and wicketkeepers. Had Kun been persisted with, his next test would have been against Bangladesh in Poch, a track that is not only friendly to batsmen, but generally welcomes them with open arms. Kun's place went instead to Aidan Markram, who scored 97 on debut. 
Markram was Elgar's eighth opening partner in five years and would prove to be amongst the most durable, part of that durability coming from the fact that they opened the innings together for the Titans. For the record, in the test against Bangladesh in which Markram made his debut, Elgar scored 199. Going through eight partners in five years is a paradoxical form of security, a strange way of telling you that you won't be dropped. You're the anchor tenant, while you watch the visitors come and go through the always-turning revolving doors. At the same time, it's deeply unsettling. It's burdensome for several reasons. Just when you're starting a relationship, you have to say goodbye. You never really get to create a chemistry, a shared sense of destiny, a method by which you can help each other out. With Markram and Elgar appearing to establish themselves as an opening pair, Elgar was also elevated to the test captaincy after the brief experiment with making Quinton de Kock test skipper looked, well, slightly too experimental. Markram, however, struggled in the three-match series at home against India. He was dropped down the order for Saril Ervia, who became Elgar's ninth test partner in as many years. Happily, I think, and logically too, given what's available out there, Elgar and Markram have recently been reunited, Ervia going the way of Cook, Kun, Debrain, Finsale, and others. With Elgar having announced his retirement, however, Markram will soon be in the position Elgar was once in, an anchor tenant forever in search of a partner to share the burden with. The home series against India in which Markram struggled so was a special one for Elgar. South Africa, remember, lost the first test at Centurion thanks to K.L. Rahul's fine century. The next test was at the Wanderers, where Elgar South Africa needed to score 240 batting last to win. Elgar scored 96 of those runs, being not out at the end in a seven-wicket victory. At Newlands, in the third test, South Africa won by seven wickets again to take the series against India 2-1. The series victory was Elgar's sweetest as skipper. Captain Elgar and coach Mark Boucher complimented each other like ham and mustard. Quote, we might bang heads, Elgar once told me, but we always somehow find a way back. Boucher's fixed bayonets mindset didn't always square with Duplessis' more inclusive approach, but when Elgar came along, he and Boucher seemed to be kindred spirits. That, of course, was until Boucher was no longer there, leaving Elgar to face the future by himself. That future took the form of new test coach Shukri Conrad, who judged that Elgar's age and poor form in Australia a year ago meant that he needed to plan for the future. Conrad gave Bavuma the test captaincy, while Elgar gave Conrad the middle finger. Elgar's irritation with Conrad took many forms. First, he announced his retirement, saying that the two home tests against India would be his last. In the test at Centurion on Boxing Day, he scored 185, as South Africa won the match by an innings, captaining the side because of Bavuma's injury and captaining it again in the final test. Elgar's match-winning 185 at Centurion was a most un-Elgar-like knock, full of fluent cover drives and imperious pulling. Maybe he needs to retire more often. 
At Newlands against India, it came full circle for Elgar because that's where he scored his first test runs against New Zealand after making his pair in Perth. Other than the fact that his final test might have been at St George's Park, where Elgar scored his first test ton, the final act has been almost perfect. Which only leaves us to reflect on Rousseau, he of the 319 runs in a day. The precinct of cricket has many rooms, and Rousseau was content to amuse himself in some of the more modern ones. He's a fine player, full of destruction, but there's no ballast to his record of 36 ODIs and 29 T20s for South Africa. It's been a career of sizzling one-act plays and cameos, a story of what might have been rather than what was. But let's be fair, Rousseau never wanted to play test cricket, or, if he once did, he quickly found other forms more lucrative and attractive. Elgar was more old-fashioned, and his record is easier to quantify as a result. He might be the last in that line for a very long time, a subject discussed at great length nearly a year ago in my episode entitled The Slow Demise of South African Test Cricket. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please give me a five-star rating. As an independent creator, this podcast is made possible through your support 